If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9, as we continue our journey through this book with our tour guide, the preacher. If you please stand with me as we hear the Word of God, the Word of God that is living and powerful, that is inerrant and sufficient. Hear now the Word of the Lord. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten." Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread in joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun." Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, and besieging it, built a great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. 
We pray, Lord, that you would use it to our benefit, to our sanctification, to our blessing, that we might be a blessing to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I find it curious as I am out and about looking at the newspaper, glancing at the television, seeing billboards, walking down the street, that many, many, many people have advice for me on how to enjoy life. And it's wide and varied. There are some people that tell me that the way to enjoy life is to find a beautiful sandy beach somewhere with a chase lounge and some food and a drink, and to relax and to do nothing. And I remember times when I've done that. But there's a problem. Sand gets caught in your feet and on your skin. And the sun will give you sunburn. And so I don't want to sit on a beach my whole life. I also remember, especially in years past, some of you may recall, a series of television commercials in which the famous Kojak, Telly Savalas, advised on how to enjoy life, and it was by joining the Players Club, baby. Go out to Vegas, be a high roller, and not just gamble, but when you were a part of the Players Club, you get the best food, you get the best rooms, you get the best service. It's the Players Club, baby. And I think, no, Telly, I think you're wrong. I don't want to spend all my life in Vegas where the casinos have misery for people who lose. and There's no window, so you can't tell whether it's day or night because they want to keep you trapped in a cave gambling. And I think, that's not for me either. And then I think back to my childhood or to my children or other children. I think, well, maybe the most... The best way to enjoy life is by going to an amusement park every day of the week. Going on rides. Eating cotton candy. Doing whatever I want. Maybe that's the way to enjoy life. And I remember back to a time when I was 11 or 12. And we had, I think, a three or four day pass to Walt Disney World. And by the end of three or four days, I'm ready to call it quits. You know, you can only take so much up and down. You can only eat so much cotton candy and hamburgers before your stomach starts to get upset. Even when you're 10 or 11 and a boy and got an ironclad stomach. I think, well, that doesn't really help me to enjoy life either. And there are others who say, well, no, no, no. What you need to do is you need to worry about your education and get a good job and find fulfillment. And I think of another set of commercials by institutions like ITT where a man comes on and describes how miserable his life was until he finally realized what he needed was to have the, a job with purpose. And he went to school, and now his life is perfect. And I think of the saying that, what, a bad day fishing or a bad day golfing is better than a good day at work. I think that's not really the way to enjoy life either. There's so many things that get in the way, sand that get in the gears of life. And... Our guide, the preacher, knows all of this because, as he said in past chapters, he's tried them all. Money, wisdom, wealth, power, food, enjoyment. And what he says here is that there is a way to enjoy life, how to really enjoy life. 
But the only way to really enjoy life is first by taking a good, hard glance at it. To stare life in the face and to see, at times, it could be pretty miserable. And then, we turn to the one who shows real enjoyment. And so what I would like us to see this morning is how to really enjoy life. As our guide gives us first two pieces of advice. The first is, he says, take off the rose-colored glasses. Life isn't perfect now, and you may know that, but let me tell you something else. It never will be. So stop waiting to turn that corner. Take off the rose-colored glasses. And then what you need to do is understand that life has limits. Understand life's limitations. There are inherent limitations to living. And then finally, although he sandwiched it in the middle of our text... He says, what I want you to do is have a view of faith. To understand life in its context so that you can see it and really, truly enjoy it with all its bumps and its bruises. Well, let us look first then at taking off the rose-colored glasses. The preacher begins, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Sounds good so far. But verse 2, or the end of verse 1 and verse 2 begins, Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil. Now that makes us uncomfortable. What do you mean here? The same thing happens to people that are good as to people who are evil? That doesn't quite sound like the Bible to me. Isn't the Bible the book that tells you be good, do good things, God will like you? Doesn't God want you to do good things? Doesn't he want you to obey? But you see, the preacher knows that that is our aim. That we are looking for a quick fix. That we want life to work according to our plan. We want life to be put in quarter, or nowadays three quarters, get out soda pop. We want it to be nice and mathematical, right? Even those of us together that don't like math, we still like life to be mathematical. Put something in, get reward out. And the preacher says, no, this is not what life is life, because life doesn't submit to us. And the first thing that's obvious, then, that we need to be reminded of is that we can't control God. You see, that's what's at the basis of put in, get out theology. I'm in charge of God. If I decide to put in, God gives out. And you see, many people think that's what Christianity is about, what biblical religion is about, but it's not. The preacher says, you can't do this. We can't control God. You see that right from the beginning of the text. I've said it once, twice, a dozen times. I'm going to say it a few dozen more. There's a benefit to taking texts in context and in a series. And we see this little phrase here at the beginning, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. And the immediate question then to us is, well, what? What's all this? And we look back and we see that it's what we looked at at the end of chapter 8, that man cannot understand all the things of God. No matter how wise he is, man cannot get a grip on God. You see, what Solomon is saying here is this, that what I'm about to tell you, that we can't control God, isn't just a fancy It isn't just 
a two-hour term paper I've slapped together. This is a period of life that I have really applied myself to try and understand. And let me tell you, the wisest man on earth can't understand the depths of God. How could you possibly be in control of God? You see, Solomon again describes to us the energy that he had in doing this. You know, this man takes greater effort to trying to find out miserable things than we do on our vacations. He says, I laid it to heart. I examined it all. I laid all of this to heart. I looked at all of it. You see, he tried to find out what he could do to figure out the righteous and the wise and how they fit into the grand plan of life. This is something that man is always doing. In centuries past, they had a word for it. It was called philosophy. Now we do the same thing, we call it science. We're trying to find the answer. We're trying to find the grand solution. The thing that unifies everything. And whether it's a philosopher like Plato thinking that it's some sort of otherness that's out there that can't be reached, that is the pattern for all things, or whether it's a mysterious unified theory of physics. Man is always seeking to find the answer behind it all. Solomon says, I tried that too. And the answer is that all things are in the hand of God. And that tells us that Solomon knows that God, not only can we not control him, God is not our debtor. All things are in his hand. The righteous and the wise especially are in his hand. Now, why does he say the righteous and the wise and not the righteous and the wicked? I think it's to remind folks like you and me, good people in church who profess to believe in the one true God, that we are in his hand. Regardless of what we do, we are in his hand. We don't get control over our lives by being righteous and wise. Sometimes we can fall prey to that kind of thinking, can't we? We look out and see sinners and see those who don't believe in God, who are foolish, and we say, they have no control over their life. Why don't they get Jesus and then have control over their life? When in reality, God controls all things, especially the righteous and the wise. And the interesting thing is, he doesn't always give us visible signs of his approval. Try as they may. Aberrant theologians cannot find a direct link between godliness and wealth. That's why there are churches and conferences where before people go, they rent Cadillacs to drive them to church. This is not a made-up story. Because having what you have is a sign of God's blessing. And if you don't have it, then what does that mean? You're not blessed. That means that you don't have faith. But see, we know commonsensically in our hearts, even if we don't confess it, that we can be fervent in our prayers. We can be doing all we should with our children. We can be in the scriptures. We can be witnessing, and our lives are miserable. Our jobs stink. Our health is bad. Neighbors are miserable. And you see, we should take comfort for that. Because if you today have a miserable neighbor, it's not a sign that God hates you. If you don't like your job, or if you've got another test coming up at school, it doesn't mean you don't have the smile of God. You see how that's interesting? That Solomon lays that out, that it's not a one-to-one correlation, that we need to know God. 
We can't control him. But also we can't control life. You know, it's, sometimes it seems as if God is not interested in what we do. Look at this list here. The same thing happens to everyone. Righteous and wicked, good and evil. You know what? Whether you profess family values or not, you will still die. Newsflash. Death comes to all. And people who profess family values still have bumps in their life. Some things come to the good and the righteous as well as the wicked and the evil. It also comes to those who don't live right. You see, it's become very popular in our day and age to say, well, we can have the good life if just we eat the right foods and we do the right exercise. But you know, Solomon says, these things happen to the clean and the unclean, to those who are scrupulous and those who are couch potatoes. It happens. And then Solomon comes and he directs it squarely at conservative Christians in America in 21st century. He says, it comes to those who sacrifice and those who do not. Honoring God by being religious also doesn't give you the perfect life. You see, it doesn't happen that go to church, pray, witness, means you'll have wealth, happiness, and success. It also doesn't happen to those of us who carry our religiosity and our morality out in the public sphere. Because he says, those who swear, and this is not talking like a sailor, that means like, I solemnly swear to obey and tell the truth. And those who don't, the same thing alike happens to them. Now, why is this? He says it's because death is the great leveler. All the same things happen. Everybody dies. There is an evil under the sun, and that is that everybody dies. And he says, you know what? Life is better than death. He reminds us that death is evil. We need to be reminded of this. That our Lord saw death as being evil at the tomb of Lazarus. That death is not a good thing. And it happens to all. And he says the dead are silent. They don't know anything. And he uses a very vivid picture. He says, better to be a live dog, or, or excuse, yes, than a dead lion. Now, we might put it in our parlance, better to be a live cockroach than a dead lion. You see, a lion was a symbol of power and authority. The Lion of Judah, Christ is called. And if you read through the Old Testament, especially First and Second Samuel, you'll see guys all the time walking around going, oh, who am I? I'm but a dead dog in your sight. You couldn't make a bigger insult to someone than call him a dog. That's why Jews took to calling Gentiles dogs. And Solomon says it's better to be a, a live dog than a dead lion. Why? Because everywhere around him there is a fascination with mythologizing death. What does that mean? That's a big set of words. It means that in all the places around Israel, people were fascinated with spirits and talking with people in the afterlife, and pagan rituals, and ancestor worship. You know, primitive people that think that ghosts and seances and spirits are the way to go. You know, primitive people like the people who watch cable television and watch Crossing Over with John Edwards. You see, it's not primitive in backwater 
that causes us to have these problems. It's bound up in our heart. We need to hear that death is real and it is evil and it is final. And there's no mysterious good land apart from God. You see, John Edwards, John Edward says this. He talks about the important message that life and death are a part of the same unending cycle, that our loved ones are never really lost to us. And you see, then that makes life not that important. It makes God not that important. Lest you think it's only cable television, I remind you that a main theme of a children's cartoon is the circle of life. You see, we're always trying to escape the harsh reality of life and trying to escape it without God. We make death this sort of great transformer. Yes, even like the transformers that our children use. Oh, it's a car. No, it's a plane. Oh, it's a plane. No, it's a building. Oh, my life is horrible. Well, all on the other side, life will be good. Somehow, death is this sort of big hand that transforms us like a little toy. But you see, death is not the transformer. God is. That's why it's the living who have hope, the ones who have life, the ones who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, death is not romantic. It is a judgment. It is a curse. Notice what he links together here. He says, men are full of evil and madness. What? So you mean if I'm focused upon death, it's going to bring wickedness and madness? All you need to do is open a newspaper. Columbine. Virginia Tech. All these places. We've taken the purpose out of life. We've mythologized death. We've taken God out of the equation. And we're surprised that wickedness and madness abound. Solomon says this is the way that life is. You know, I can remember a day, and quite frankly, I'm not that old, when you didn't need a metal detector to go to school. Now, would they even think of building schools without metal detectors if they had the money? I don't think so. This is one of the problems with life. So take off the glasses and see life. And understand then that life has limitations. Look at verse 11. He says, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, etc. Solomon says another thing that should strike us as immediately true. He says life is unexpected. You see, we expect our abilities to be paramount. We expect if we just have the right skill that we'll have things figured out. If we're swift, we'll win the race. If we're strong, we'll win the battle. Right? If we memorize passages, our life will be perfect. We have categories that we want to fit in here. And Solomon lays this all bare. Do you notice the breadth of his categories? He says, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong. And lest we sit there and say, yeah, that's right. People should be concerned about more serious things than mere physical. He says, you know what? Smart doesn't help you either. You don't get food by being wise. <laughs> he says, you don't get favor by having knowledge. He breaks out all the categories, the physical and the mental. There's no escape for you, depending on where you go. You see, because we want control. We want to know if we just get swift, we'll always win the race. If we just are smart, we'll always have bread. We'll always have respect. 
We want control. And making us think about this traps us. You see, we want control and we are trapped by our own desires for control. We're in a situation, life isn't perfect, and we think it's our fault and there's no way out. And we despair. We have no hope. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt trapped in a marriage? Because you just couldn't make it work the way it should work. Have you ever felt trapped in a dead-end job? Looked back and said, never thought I'd be doing this for 10 years. Wow. I guess life's a write-off. Right? And we, we look back and we see the misery. Have you ever felt trapped even on a lesser scale? You're in school and you've got a really bad teacher. One that doesn't like you. You ever had that? You see, we feel trapped. Things are out of our control. Because time and chance enter the equation. Time isn't in our control. This refers back to Ecclesiastes 3. Do you remember? There's a time for peace, a time for war, a time to rip, a time to mend. We know that we don't have control of time. And Solomon tells us that all things are affected by time. All things appear to be affected by chance. We cannot plan things out. It doesn't mean that life is random. It means that we are not the planning behind non-randomness. That is oftentimes our goal. Life is unexpected. But life is also not fair. He tells us this little story. You know he's the preacher, not just because that's what his name is in chapter 1, but because he gives you a principle and then what does he do? He says, let me tell you a story. Let me give you an illustration about this so you get it. He says, there once was a town. It wasn't really a big town. And they were at war against a big and powerful king. But they were saved by a poor wise man. Saved from this big, powerful king. And then, of course, the town lifted up the poor wise man on their shoulders and had a parade for him and showered gifts on him, right? No. Because life's not fair. The wise man gets forgotten. He's nowhere to be found. You see, life has a way of twists and turns here. There's no built-in guarantee. We need to be reminded of this. Because if life were like math, we would live our lives looking solely to the reward rather than the rewarder. What can I do to have a good marriage? Ten steps. Check, 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 check. What can I do to witness properly? Six steps. Check, 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 check. Okay, God, give me converts. Right? Now, we don't do it in that crass of a fashion, but I'm sort of limited by time here, so I can't be roll it out as long as we do in our minds. But that can be a mentality that can seize us. And you see, Solomon says, well, we need to strip that away. And why do we strip it away? We strip it away to go in verse 7, to the view of faith. That's how to really be happy. To see that life is not happiness because of what we control and what we do, but because of God. He says, go eat your bread in joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. I want you to notice something else. There is a command here. Go. Enjoy life. 
You see, there's another error that we can fall into oftentimes as Christians. We see that life isn't perfect. We know, we talk about being soldiers of the cross. We, we know that there's misery and suffering, right? And so we consign ourselves to misery and suffering. And we need to be reminded to enjoy life, right? There's a good practical homey example of this. How many of you now or before when your kids were small had someone walk up to you, especially after your kids did something that made you want to rip your hair out and eat it and say, enjoy these times. Before you blink, what? They'll be gone, right? It's hard to enjoy life in the midst of that. Let me, my hand is raised here. Four children under 10 are not the easiest thing to deal with on a daily basis. And I need those godly reminders to say, you know what? Someday they're going to be gone. Someday you're going to be attending their graduation. Someday you're going to be attending a marriage. We need reminders to enjoy life in the midst of life. That Christianity is not about simply gritting our teeth and getting through to glory. That even in the midst of difficulty and suffering, life is enjoyable because God is found in the midst of it. You see, we have these good things, and we don't just eat and drink to survive. Solomon says, have these in joy, with a merry heart, with gladness. Now, why is this? It's because enjoyment in life comes from God. It's this odd end to verse 7. For God has already approved what you do. Now, what does that mean? Well, if we were to be take our Bibles out of context, rip this one verse out, we can use that as a proof text for, I can do whatever I want. God's already approved it, right? No. God has already approved what you do to enjoy life. Because God is in control of everything. The wise and the righteous are what? In his hand. God is in control of your life. God is leading you inexorably to a place where you will be united with him because of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, notice something. There's a, a wonderful gospel beam here. What does a person need to do to enjoy life? Simply to receive what God's given him, right? Because God has already established it beforehand and already approved it. What Solomon is saying, I think, in a sense, is that we should treat life like we treat salvation. A gift to be received and enjoyed because it comes from the hand of God. Not a source for worry, not a source for doubt, but something to be enjoyed and received. And what is it that we can enjoy? Solomon, again, covers all the ground. It's not like there's one or two things, and if you're not really big on eating, well, you're lost because... I don't really enjoy eating bread. Or I don't particularly enjoy wine, so I guess I'm out, I'm in the miserable quadrant of Christians. No, look at how broad it is. Enjoy the bread. Enjoy the wine. Gifts from God in food and drink. But notice also what he says. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. This is a sign of comfort and of joy. Wear good white garments like you would to a party. What he's saying is enjoy your party clothes. Have fun. Enjoy life. And pour the oil over your head. Now, this is an image that we have lost a little bit here. 
but it's throughout the scriptures of oil and gladness. First of all, one of the primary uses for oil was, it was the ancient deodorant. And what Solomon is saying here is, it's a good thing to be around people and to be pleasant. And to smell nice. And to be smooth. But there's another thing that oil did. Some of you may have experienced this if you're out for a long period of time out in the bleaker, non-hilly, non-shaded areas of Texas. You stay out there too long, what happens to you? Hands get dry and brittle, right? Feet start to maybe crack. You're uncomfortable, right? Dust, itchy in your eyes. Oil was what was used to make you comfortable. So your skin would stay comfortable. So you could enjoy life and not be twitching in your clothes. What Solomon is saying here is, enjoy the comfort that God gives you. And then he says, enjoy the companionship that God gives you. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life he has given you under the sun. Because this is your portion in life. Solomon's advice here is both to the faithful and the faithless because he mixes categories here for the first time in a long time. He uses our special tag phrase, where do you to enjoy your wife? Under the sun. But then he also uses this word, for it is the portion that God has given to you. And if you look back, every time he uses the word portion, it is the gift of God. Which points us back to something we already know, that marriage is a creation ordinance. Marriage is to the benefit of both believers and unbelievers. It is something that God has given to us how we may really enjoy life. We need to be reminded of that for two reasons. The first is, our society has come to the point where they say, marriage is a detriment to life, not a source of enjoyment. We put off marriage as long as we can. We have a string of marriages. In America today, you go to the third world, they refer to America as serial polygamy. The only difference between us and those who have multiple wives is we have our wives in succession rather than at the same time. We're always trying to find happiness outside of marriage. And Solomon says that's not the case. Solomon says it's the gift of God even that you can enjoy work itself. He says while you have the power to work, work. Now, again, this shouldn't surprise us. Because if I were to say to you, life, the way to really enjoy life, to enjoy being with God, to enjoy marriage, and to enjoy work, what should that remind you of? What's a picture of being with God, marriage, and work? Genesis chapter 2, isn't it? That, man create, that God created man to be in communion with him. And he said it's not good that man would be alone. So he created woman. And he said, go and work. Keep the garden and till it. Solomon's giving us a picture of Eden. He says you can live life today, Christian, in a sense, in Eden. With a view toward Eden. Because you have God. He's given you the wife of your youth. And you can enjoy work because of what God has done in your life. How does that allow us to grin and bear it? What kind of a people would we be if we went out into the community and people didn't see Christians who are saying, Oh, you know, can't do this. Can't do that. Got to do this. Oh, man. Or if they saw Christians that said, I'm living life 
like in the Garden of Eden because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Do you think that would transform our witness to a society? I think so. So does Solomon. That's why he urges us to this. Because now he's going to successively, like a stone rolling downhill in chapters 10, 11, and 12, he's going to start really making things clear. He's starting to crack now from stripping away the old varnish. And he's going to start showing us the clean wood underneath. You see, this is how life is to be lived. We need these reminders. We do. We have one of those reminders with us this morning. That life is to be lived with joy and gladness. I don't think it's a coincidence that the scripture speaks right here of enjoying bread and drinking wine. And that that is the picture that our Lord gave us for remembering him. For the real enjoyment of life is Jesus Christ, is it not? What is man's chief end? Catechism class. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what we are called to, to really enjoy life. And so I invite you now, this morning, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, to begin enjoying life. To not worry about whether your membership in the Players Club will last. To not worry about whether a vacation is too expensive this year. To not worry about whether this or whether that. But to come to Christ. For that is where real enjoyment of life is found. And I invite you this morning, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, to remind yourself of that. To preach that gospel to yourself today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, Tuesday, and so on. For that is where joy and gladness is found, not in circumstances. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed us with this, your word. We ask, O Lord, that even as now as we prepare for your table, that you would provide for us a clear picture of what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.